0: Come sing, pray, write new music, share testimonies and resources, and grow together with like-minded worship leaders from across the world. Go to liw.net to register. Today we come to the third and final study in this series, The Abiding Disciple. And as we come to it, I come with a question. What should the abiding disciple expect from the world around them as they seek to live out their faith in Jesus? A number of years ago, our church went on a mission trip to the Central American country of Honduras. We partnered with a church in Oklahoma pastored by a good friend of mine named Bill Norman. Bill Norman leads short-term mission trips every year. He came out to meet with our group to give us some insights and some instructions into what the trip would be. He brought with him a list, a list of instructions that he handed out to everyone who attended. It had eight or 10, 12 items on it, And Bill read down through the list, commenting on each one. Right at the top of the list was a statement that said, This is a mission trip. It has been well planned. But no matter how well it has been planned, something will go wrong. And then he went on down the list to item three or four or five, somewhere along in there. And there was another statement that said, This is a mission trip. It has been well planned. But no matter how well planned it has been, something will go wrong. And then two or three more down the list, he came to one that said, This is a mission trip. It has been well planned. But no matter how well planned it has been, something will go wrong. And then the last item on the list, you know what it said, don't you? This is a mission trip. It has been well planned. But no matter how well planned it has been, something will go wrong we were starting to get the idea. And it was an important idea because we human beings, who am I kidding? We Americans have very high expectations. I want you to listen to this quote from the historian Daniel Burstein who makes an observation about we Americans. Listen to what Burstein writes. We expect anything and everything. We expect the contradictory and the impossible. We expect compact cars which are spacious, luxurious cars which are economical. We expect to be rich and charitable, powerful and merciful, active and reflective, kind and competitive. We expect to eat and stay thin, to be constantly on the move and ever more neighborly, to go to the church of our choice and yet feel its guiding power over us, to revere God and to be God. Never have people been more the masters of their environment, yet never has a people felt more deceived and disappointed, for never has a people expected so much more than the world could offer. We have high expectations, and that can be a problem. And so I come to this study with a question. What should the abiding disciple expect of the world around him or her as they seek to live out their faith in Jesus? We've been nestled down in John 15 for now the third week. In the first section of John 15, Jesus has talked about the disciple's relationship to himself. And the lesson was simple, abide in the vine, abide in Jesus. Everything begins and ends with abiding in him. The fruit grows because we abide in him. Second week, he talked about the disciples' relationship to other disciples. And the guiding term was love. We are to love one another as Jesus has loved us. And now we come to the third relationship, the disciples' relationship to the world around him or her. Thus the question, what is the abiding disciple to expect from the world around him or her as he or she seeks to live out their faith in Jesus? So we're in the last third of John chapter 15. Now before we read the passage though, I want to call three items to your attention. Two terms and one concept. So the first term that we'll see in the passage is the term world. The Greek word is cosmos. In a moment when we read the passage, we'll see that Jesus uses that term five times in the first two verses. World. It's an important term in the Gospel of John and all of John's writings, in fact. In the Gospel of Matthew, the term appears three times, Mark three times, Luke three times, Cosmos just nine times total in the other three synoptic Gospels. In the Gospel of John, it occurs 78 times. And if you add in the Johannine, the the epistles of John, that adds 24 more times. 185 times, give or take one or two. That word appears in the New Testament. Well over half of those appear in the Gospel of John and in the Epistles of John. It's an important word. Now it does have some different meanings, but predominant among its meanings is the world system in opposition to God, actually in rebellion against God doesn't have to be the secular system, because after all, when Jesus is talking about the system that is against him, it's a very religious system. The world, that system which is in opposition to or rebellion against God, that's the first term. Second term is the term hate or hatred. It appears in this passage, too, seven times in eight verses. Now, when Jesus uses a strong term like hate or hatred, it's time to sit up and pay attention. What in the world is he saying? Remember now, he's talking about the disciples' relationship to the world around him or her. He's talking about our expectations. What should we expect of that relationship. So when he uses that word seven times, it's time to listen. That's the second term. Now the concept. The concept is one that we call in our modern world religious liberty. I want to tell you a couple of things quickly about religious liberty. Number one, I want to tell you, I am profoundly thankful for religious liberty. Thankful to live in a land where we can worship where we can believe, where we can practice our beliefs with freedom. Such is not true for many in our world today. We'll read this passage and we'll think, well, does that apply to us? There are many who would read the passage and say, I'm living that today. Second thing about religious liberty, if you agree with me, if you experience it, It's time to get on our knees and thank God for religious liberty. But it's also time to remember that systems with lamb-like pasts have begun to huff and puff like dragons. It won't last forever. So this passage may apply sooner and more directly than we might wish. So with those two terms and that concept in place, world, hate, and religious liberty, let's read the passage from John. John chapter 15, beginning in verse 18. Jesus, again speaking, says, If the world hates you, keep in mind that it hated me first, If you belonged to the world, it would love you as its own. As it is, you do not belong to the world, but I have chosen you out of the world. That is why the world hates you. Remember what I told you. A servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will persecute you also. If they obeyed my teaching, they will obey obey yours also. They will treat you like this because of my name, for they do not know the one who sent me. If I had not come and spoken to them, they would not be guilty of sin. But now they have no excuse for their sin. Whoever hates me hates my father as well. If I had not done among them the works no one else did, they would not be guilty of sin. As it is, they have seen and yet they have hated both me and my father. But this is to fulfill what is written in their law. They hated me without reason." Our lesson for today is very simple. What the Master received, the disciple can expect. What the Master received, the disciple can expect. Now, that simple lesson has two components, two elements to it. The first one is we look to Jesus for our model of what to expect. And the second one is, we look to Jesus for our model of how to respond. So let's begin with, we look to Jesus for our model of what to expect. Jesus is very clear in this passage. If you belong to me, if you abide in me, life will be hard. Plan on it. Count on it. In fact, Jesus will go on in the next chapter just a couple of verses later. John 16. Let me read you, this time from the New Living Translation, just parts of two verses in the next chapter. Listen, Jesus says, I have told you these things so that you won't abandon your faith. Yes, I'm telling you these things now so that when they happen, you will remember my warning. This is what you can expect. In fact, did you notice those three words in the the first verse we read, John 15, 18, he says, if the world hates you, that's a conditional clause which says it's going to. If the world hates you, then come the three words, keep in mind that it hated me first. Keep in mind if the world disrespects you, keep in mind that it disrespected Jesus first. If the world mocks you, keep in mind it mocked Jesus first. If the world persecutes you, keep in mind it persecuted Jesus. If the world kills you, keep in mind it killed Jesus. It's a good thing to keep in mind. So that we know what to expect. So that when it happens, we don't wonder what went wrong. No, Jesus told us what the master received, the disciple can expect. Now let's be honest. We all like to be liked. I like to be liked. It's better than not being liked. It's a human desire. We all want to be liked. There's no problem with that. It's a human need. We would like to be liked. That's okay as far as it goes, but we get into trouble when it moves from saying, I would like to be liked to saying, I need to be liked. I need it. Because when we need it, we are willing to pay the cost to get it. It's like I've told counselees, young adults before, when they're struggling with something with their parents. I've told them. It's wonderful to have your parents' approval. We all want that. I wanted that throughout my adult life from mom and dad. But it's a problem when we need it as adults. I've said to them, as long as you need, you require your parents' approval. You're a slave to their expectations. And that's what Jesus is saying here about the world. You may want to be liked by the world. That's fine. Have good relationships with the world around you insofar as you can. That's wonderful. But when you need it, require it, you will have to pay the price the world is asking to get it. In fact, Jesus goes a step beyond that over in Luke's gospel He actually says, woe to you, beware to you, when all people speak well of you. When everybody likes you, Jesus says, beware. Why? Because he finishes that statement by saying, because that's the way they spoke of the false prophets. In other words, if everybody likes you, there's probably something false going on. Because if you stand for anything at all, at all. It's going to sooner or later cross somebody else, and they're not going to like it. And then, not too far a step to the place where they don't like you. So if you're thinking, everybody likes me. Life is good. I'm living the dream. Jesus says, beware, be careful, whoa, because something's wrong. And that's the essence of what he's saying in our passage today. They have mistreated me. They have persecuted me. They are about to kill me. What the master received, the disciple can expect. So how did this work in the world of the early church? I read again just this past week. Read again about the Roman Empire in which... The early church existed. Read again about the fact that the Pax Romana prevailed on that wide, disparate world called the Roman Empire. It's true, as Charles Swindoll says, that the crush of Rome's heavy boot was tough to bear, but it did bring peace and togetherness and a certain semblance of unity, a certain sense of prosperity. And the citizens appreciated that. Emperor worship, I read, did not actually begin with the emperors, but with the people. As they began to venerate Caesar as a god and express gratitude to Caesar. At first, the emperor resisted it, but soon realized, I can't overcome it, and besides, felt good. And thus, over time, it developed that Caesar was venerated. It developed to the point that every year, every citizen of the Roman Empire was expected to burn a pinch of incense to Caesar and to confess Caesar is Lord. Just once a year. Just that. It's not a big deal. Rome was tolerant. After that, you could go worship any God you wanted to worship. That was up to you. You could worship anywhere, anyone. Once a year. Pinch of incense. Caesar is Lord. And the abiding disciples wouldn't do it. They wouldn't do it. Because they said, but Caesar is not Lord. Jesus is Lord. Now come. It's the Roman Empire. Trying to unify it. Be a good citizen. You can imagine what the people around these Christ followers were saying. Worship whoever you want to worship. Go on with your myth about some risen, itinerant rabbi. You can worship whatever you want to worship, but once a year, unify the empire. And they said, no. We can't do it. You can understand why the other citizens would say, I hate those Christians. Hate them. Now, sadly, honestly, At times, those who follow Christ or claim to have pushed it much further than that, have deserved some of what we've gotten. But there in the Roman Empire, those early abiding disciples couldn't revere Caesar. And they were persecuted. It was the English historian who wrote of the rise and fall of the the Roman Empire, Edward Gibbon, who would say this, Rome was bound to reject Christianity because Rome was tolerant. Did that register? Rome was bound to reject Christianity. Because Rome was tolerant. Worship whomever you would worship. But give obeisance to Caesar. And the abiding disciple says, We have but one Lord. And they were hated and persecuted, mistreated and slaughtered. What the Master received, the disciple can expect. And so on that night, within hours of the cross, Jesus speaks words that tell us we look to Jesus for our model of what to expect. But there's a second reality, a second element in this passage to which we have to give attention and pay heed. Not only do we look to Jesus for our model of what to expect, but we look to Jesus for our model of how to respond. How do we respond to the world around us? Now, this issue is not overtly addressed in the passage. It's there, but it's more subtle. Having said that, it is all through the teaching of Jesus and all through the writings of the other New Testament authors. I want you to notice this in this passage, however. I mentioned a few moments ago that the word hate appears in this passage seven times, seven times in eight eight verses. Isn't it curious that in our previous passage last week, When Jesus was talking about the disciples' relationship to other disciples, he used the word love nine times in nine verses. This time, when he talks about the world, he uses the word hate seven times in eight verses. It gives you the different qualities of these two relationships. Like I said, when Jesus uses a strong term like hate, it's time to sit up and pay attention. So what can we gather from this passage about that word? Simply this, in this passage, it addresses only, only the attitude of the world toward the abiding disciple, or that disciple's Lord, or that Lord's Father, only that direction. It does not address the attitude of the abiding disciple toward the world. No, it's a one-way street. This is what you can expect of the world. Because you do not live by its ethics, its morals, its standards. You can expect the world will be angry, will slander you, will hate you. That's what you can expect. So then our question is, okay, so what is our model of response? How do we respond to that? Clearly, in this passage, we don't respond in kind. Not at all. We have to look elsewhere for some clues of how we do respond. That elsewhere can be in this same gospel we go back earlier into this gospel, we find that word world, cosmos, again, in what may be the best-known, most-beloved Bible text of all time. Jesus says, For God so loved the world. Cosmos, that's our word again. So what was the attitude of the Father toward the world? love. What was the action of the Son? Remember, agape, it's not about feelings. It's about action on on behalf of and for the good of the other. What did the Son do? He came. He gave his life. So what are we to do? The New Testament writers are utterly clear. We are to be people of love and of grace and of compassion, of mercy. People who care about those around us. That's how Jesus conducted his ministry. And we look to Jesus for our model of how to respond. I mean, think about what Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount. Do you remember he was addressing the same kind of theme When he said, blessed are you when people revile you and persecute you and say all manner of evil against you, wait for it, falsely. (laughs) Falsely. In other words, you are blessed when they have no reason to say it even if they do say it. Why? Because your life has not drawn that kind of response because of how you have lived. No. it's Because of their anger that you live by a different ethical standard. You're blessed, says Jesus, when they say those things against you falsely. But do you know what the real tragedy is? The real tragedy, historically and in the modern time, is when people have said those things with good reason. That's the tragedy. When our response has not been according to the model which Jesus left us. What about those churches? that were complicit with Nazi Germany. What about those supposedly Bible-believing Christians who used their version of the Bible to support Jim Crow and segregation and heinous acts of racial injustice? What about those who name the name of Christ Who have forgotten all about the little, the last, the least, the lost, the lonely. What about those who name the name of Jesus who have contributed to the demise of civil discourse in this country? What about them? It ought to disturb us profoundly. After all, I want to read to you a verse to which I have been drawn time and again. It's a verse from Peter from his, from his first epistle. A, a verse that comes surprisingly from the pen of this, as Ron Halverson Sr. once said, blustering, blundering apostle. This short-fused apostle. This stick-your-foot-in-your-mouth apostle. Listen, after He spent time abiding in Christ. What he could write, 1 Peter 3, starting partway through verse 15, this is what Peter writes. Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have, but do this with gentleness and respect, keeping a clear conscience So that those who speak maliciously against your good behavior may be ashamed of their slander. It's utterly clear there that our lives are above reproach. They are being modeled after the pattern of Jesus by the power of his Holy Spirit. He says it in three different ways. Keeping a clear conscience, your good behavior, and they'll be ashamed of their slander. What is slander? It's people who say things about you that are not true. So live, look to Jesus for your model of how to respond. The Jesus who is about to go to the cross and yet has the depth of soul to say, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. That's how the world treated him. Hatred. That's how he treated the world, love. We look to Jesus for our model of how to respond. Our lesson for the day is clear. What the master received, the disciple can expect. It was October, October of 2013, the city, Ann Arbor, Michigan. It was a rally, one of those potentially deadly rallies where two sides face off. In this case, it had been started by the KKK, there to spew their vile vitriol, there to put on display their racism, their prejudice, their anger and hatred. And so others responded, understandably, to push back severely against that message. The lines were drawn. The police were there in riot gear trying to keep the peace. The atmosphere was charged and tense. And it was then that somebody saw a man in the crowd, not over with those white-robed, conically-helmeted KKKers, but in the crowd, They spotted his T-shirt, his tattoos, and somebody shouted, Get the Nazi! He immediately began to walk faster, tried to run, tried to escape. Didn't make it. He was thrown onto the ground. The beating began, the kicking, the fists, the epithets of rage and anger. And it was then... That she acted. She is Keisha Thomas. Keisha was a teenager, a high school student. Keisha would later say it was as though two angels picked her up and laid her down. whether it was angels or not, I'll let Keisha decide that. What everyone else saw was that Keisha threw herself upon the body of this kkk -er, laid her body on him and began to scream at the mob to stop, to stop, to hold back. She responded by protecting him, a man who would never have come to her protection but would rather have attacked her. There was a photographer, a student photographer there that day named Mark Bruner. Mark Bruner, whose picture you're seeing on the screen right now, Mark Bruner would later say this, Keisha put herself at physical risk to protect someone who, in my opinion, would not have done the same for her. Who does that? In this world? Good question, Mark. Who does that in this world? The news piece I read had words by the writer that seemed a bit befuddled in trying to explain an answer to Mark's question Who does that in this world? There were two reasons, according to the writer. One was that Keisha had known violence. She knew it's searing pain. She knew that hurt people hurt people. And she knew she had to stop it. But there was a second reason. And it was at this reason that it seemed, to me anyway, that the writer was a bit uncertain because the writer simply said her religious beliefs played into it as well. (laughs) I don't know what specific religious beliefs were those the writer was referencing, but I do know this. Those beliefs were put on shining display in Keisha's life that day by following the model of Jesus. What the master received, the disciple can expect. Referring to this passage, William Barclay, the Old New Testament scholar, says, One thing is certain. Christians who were involved in persecution could not say that they had not been warned. On this matter, Jesus was quite explicit. He had told his people beforehand what they might expect. That's our passage for today. I have a word of advice for you. If you read this passage, And you say to yourself, I can't really relate to that. I'm not persecuted or hated because I'm an abiding disciple. If that's you, here's my word of advice. Get down on your knees and thank God for religious liberty. And while you're down there, ask God to help you keep in mind that sometimes lambs become dragons. And because of that, we look to Jesus for our model of what to expect and we look to Jesus for our model of how to respond.